invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8. In Louisville, where I pastor, we've been working through Mark's Gospel, and we've just come to this section in Mark 8, and today we're going to focus on verse 34, but I'm going to read verses 27 to 34. So Mark 8, we're about halfway through Mark's Gospel, and we've come to a turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is a pivotal moment in his life, and we could, we could identify other such moments. For example, when he was about the age of 30, and he came from his hometown in Galilee, and he came and was baptized in Jordan. We read of that in the first chapter, that he came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then another turning point was the imprisonment of John the Baptist. And we read these words in Mark 1.14, that after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this was the beginning of his Galilean ministry. And what we have in Mark's gospel from that point up to this point is focused in and around Galilee. And what we see is Jesus, the mighty worker and also the preacher. He's preaching, he's teaching, massive crowds are gathering. We're seeing that he's healing and casting out demons. That's the first part of Mark's gospel, what we could call the first act of Mark's gospel. And now as we come to this text in chapter 8, we're moving in to what we could call the second act of Mark's gospel. The first act focused on his public ministry in and around Galilee, and this act is going to focus on his private ministry to his 12 disciples. And it's going to take place primarily on the road to Jerusalem, and ultimately as he's making his way to the cross. So that's a little bit of the setting here as we come to Mark 8. And again, I'm going to read verses 27 to 34. We read that Jesus, and I'm reading from the New King James Version here. Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And here's our verse. 
When he had called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's again ask the Lord for his help and his blessing as we open his word. Father, again, we thank you that we can be in your house today. Thank you for this day that you have given us a gift for body and soul. Lord, we thank you that we can focus our attention upon your word this morning, your holy word, your infallible word. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us and opens up your word and our minds and our hearts and our eyes and ears. And we pray for that this morning. We ask your blessing. We leave all of these things in your hands and seek that you would multiply it and bring us a blessing as our eyes are turned to Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, sometimes a preacher has to demonstrate the relevance of his text, and he has to labor to do that. So maybe he's preaching in the Old Testament, for example, the principles governing kings in ancient Israel. And it's not clear that this is relevant to us today. How could that be relevant? Well, the preacher has to labor to show to show that, to build that bridge. But then there are other times when it's obvious how a text is relevant. And in our case, as we turn to Mark 8.34, the relevance ought to be obvious because we have a vitally important statement here, possibly the most important statement our Lord makes about Christian discipleship about following after him. And let me read those words again. Whoever desires to come after me, says Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So our subject's very relevant. It's discipleship and self-denial. Really, this is the Christian life, following after Jesus. And this demands our careful attention, not just this morning, But this is the sort of text, a well-known text to you all, but it's the sort of text we ought to meditate upon throughout our Christian life. So let's turn to this, and what I want to do is first look at the context of this statement in verse 34. So firstly, let's look at the context, and especially what comes before it in verses 31 to 33. Now, one of the rules, one of the first rules of biblical interpretation is that we ought to look at texts within their context. We shouldn't take them out of their surroundings, away from their surroundings. And when we do that, when we take something out of context, we're in danger of misunderstanding it and misapplying it. So, for example, if I'm speaking to you of self-denial in the context of training for a race, or a soccer match, whatever it might be, your mind might go to denying yourself certain foods that you enjoy. But when we come here and we see the context in which self-denial is spoken of, we see that it takes on a deeper meaning. As I said, we've come to a turning point in Mark's gospel, and the pivot or hinge is that great confession of Peter. Jesus has asked the central question of Mark's gospel, really of all of life. Who do you say that Jesus is? And he has answered correctly saying, you are the Christ. You're the coming one. You're the one we've been longing for, the Messiah of God. That's in verse 29, the pivot here. 
And then notice, look at verse 31. It's from that point on in Jesus' ministry that we have a change in his teaching method. He begins to teach his disciples what must happen to him. And we read in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, that was his favorite self-designation. The Son of Man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he's giving them this instruction. He's pointing them to the scriptures, no doubt. Matthew says in his parallel account that he was showing them what he must do as the Messiah. So he would have been taking the scriptures and saying, see, this is what the Messiah must do. I must suffer. It's necessary to fulfill the will of God. It's necessary in order that sinners might be saved. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And then he says, I must rise again. And they didn't understand that word at this time. So Jesus has started to give this new course of instruction. And he spoke this openly, is what Mark tells us here. That means plainly, clearly. So that they they hear him saying this in a new way, with new clarity, and it was not received well. Look at verse 32 again. He spoke it openly, and then Peter took him aside. He pulled Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke Jesus because he's saying, this is what I must do. Peter didn't like this, and and all of the disciples would not have liked. Peter is speaking for them all. We can understand this, though, if we put ourselves in their shoes. The shock of it when their beloved teacher... Their master, they've been following him around, now says, I must leave you. And and the way that I must do it is by suffering, by rejection, and by my death. So his hour is approaching. He's going to depart. And he's preparing them for that now with this new instruction. Now, they were resistant to this because, look at verse 33, they were not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In other words, they had their minds fixed upon the earth, upon the things of man, and not the things of God. And that causes them immediately to to hear what Jesus is saying and to reject it, and Peter even to rebuke him. Jesus is saying, I must suffer, I must die, He's saying all these things he has to do, but Peter is saying you must not do this. See, because his mind was fixed upon earthly things, the things of man, he says, may it never be Jesus, but Jesus says, I must, because his mind was fixed upon the things of God. His mind was fixed upon doing his Father's will. He said, I must do this and praise God that Jesus' mind was fixed upon the things of God that he said, I must do this because if Peter got what he wanted, if Peter prevailed upon Jesus, then there would be no salvation. So Jesus had his mind set on the things of God and he said, I must suffer. And then it's immediately after this that we have our verse, verse 34. So look at that again. It's after that that Jesus calls the people, he calls the crowd to himself together with his disciples, and begins to teach them about discipleship. If you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So the context of this statement is Jesus' own self-denial and Jesus' own cross-bearing. 
And all of that done in an unwavering obedience to the will of God. That's the context. Because what Peter and even Satan himself wanted for Jesus was for Jesus to spare himself. They're saying, spare yourself. Why should you suffer and die? But Jesus is saying, I'm not going to spare myself because I have come not to do that, not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. So we see that this self-denial here to which we are called is patterned after Jesus' self-denial, which means we are called to a complete self-denial. And it's not just self-denial, but it's also consecration to God. You see how the two go together. Jesus was denying himself in complete consecration or devotion to God and to doing the will of the Father. And the result of that complete devotion and self-denial was his own death. And it was for us. That's the immediate context. That sheds light upon this statement of verse 34. But it also adds weight to it. What we're looking at this morning is weighty. These are weighty words. This is weighty instruction from our Lord. Because we're talking about following in the footsteps of one who laid his own life down, who was willing to go to the cross for us and to suffer and to die. But notice also, this is what Peter and the rest of them missed at this time. Jesus isn't just calling us to follow him as one who suffered and was rejected and died, but we're to follow him as one who died but was also raised So we are to follow a suffering, crucified Savior, but as we celebrate every Lord's Day, a risen Savior. So those are the things we're speaking of. Denying ourselves, not just a few pleasures, not just sleep, not just certain foods or things like that. It might require that, this self-denial we're called to, but it's deeper than that. And the stakes are higher than that. So that's something of the context just to set this up. But I want us now to focus upon the content of Jesus' instruction in verse 34. So we've seen the context, but now let's look at the content of this instruction. And I want you to notice first that Jesus summons not just his 12 disciples, his inner circle. Look again at verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples, when he had called the crowd and summoned them together. And this is important because it's not just a word for the inner circle, for those 12 disciples, but this is a word for all of the crowd. He's calling them here. This applies to anyone and to everyone who desires to follow Christ. So it's relevant for all who would want to follow Christ today. Notice also that this statement in verse 34 is conditional. It's basically an if-then. If you want to follow Christ, if that's your desire, Jesus says, then this is necessary. We could translate it, if you want to follow Christ, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow after him. Now this language I've already been saying, this speaks of discipleship. When we read, if you want to come after me. And then he says again, if, 
if you're going to follow me. This language of coming after Christ and following Christ is the language of discipleship. To be a disciple is to be a learner, to follow Christ and to learn from him. And in fact, this verb to follow is used often in this special way. When Jesus called his first disciples, what did he say to them? He said, follow me. So he comes to those four fishermen. First, he came to Peter and Andrew. We have this in Mark chapter 1. He says, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him to be his disciples. James and John, they left their father Zebedee in the fishing boat with the hired servants and they went after Jesus. That's the language of discipleship. And then in chapter 2, we have Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, who immediately got up from his tax office and followed Jesus. So these men, his disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. And they literally followed him. They walked around behind him day by day for about three years, following him, learning from him, seeing what he was doing, learning from his example, but also his instruction along the way. This is discipleship. It gives us a pattern for what we're called to, to follow Jesus and to learn. Jesus was their teacher. They were the students or the disciples. The same is true today. So our text is about Christian discipleship, coming after Jesus or following him. And I want to emphasize that Jesus isn't referring to an elite class of Christians. He's not saying there will be some Christians who are just Christians, but then there's some really serious Christians who are going to be my disciples, and they're going to follow after me. There's no distinction in the New Testament between being a Christian and being a disciple. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And this is indicated even by the fact that he's calling all of the crowd. And he's saying, whoever wants to follow me, let him do these things. So even as we heard earlier, Jesus calls sinners to himself to come and find rest. He says, come to me and find rest. Rest for your soul, Matthew eleven twenty eight. But he adds this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So come to me, but also learn from me. Come after me, be my disciple, follow after me. So that's what we're coming to do this morning. Jesus is, is summoning us. We're coming to Christ's feet to learn from him. Now, after this opening clause where Jesus is summoning people to him to hear, there's three parts to what Jesus says. And it's very simple. There's three parts, and they're they're each a command, three different commands. So the order is important. First, he says, whoever desires to come after me, here's the first command, let him deny himself. The second thing is, let him take up his cross, and then let him follow me. So those three parts. One man puts it this way. There are three things necessary in traveling. First, to say farewell to self. Secondly, to carry our baggage. That's the cross. And then thirdly, to proceed with the journey, to follow Christ. And the only question is our will or our desire to take this journey. Whoever desires to come after Christ. So let's look at those in order. First, Jesus says, let him deny himself. This is the first thing, and it must be the first thing, self-denial. We could call this the first principle 
of discipleship. The first principle of discipleship. Calvin even calls it the sum of the Christian life. Self-denial. What does it mean though? Well, this word to deny means to refuse to recognize. Or to refuse to acknowledge. And we find it most often in the New Testament associated with the denial of Christ by Peter. Peter denied Christ. So let's think of that for a moment. Peter said that he would never deny Christ. He said, I would die before I deny you, Christ. And yet what we find after Jesus was arrested and he was on trial, we find that Peter was doing just that. When he was pressed, he even said, and we have this in Mark 14, I do not know this man. That's denial. He's saying, I I have nothing to do with him. I don't even know him. He's refusing to recognize Christ. He's denying Christ. He disowned Christ for a time. And why was that? It's because he was not willing to disown himself. So when when Peter is denying Jesus, it's him refusing to deny himself. So he's denying Christ. Christ. That's what we see. And he did so out of self-preservation. What Jesus is calling us to do is to deny ourselves. In a sense, to refuse to acknowledge ourselves. To disown ourselves. To say, I don't belong to myself. You see that? You're disowning self. Saying no to self. And you're saying, I belong entirely to God. That's what we have here, self-denial. Now, we've already seen that this self-denial Jesus is speaking of is complete. Jesus being the ultimate pattern of this self-denial. It was a complete self-denial, a complete devotion to God. Even, and we we need to, to think of this and meditate upon this, but even the Son of God, even Christ did not spare himself when he came to this world. He denied himself. He yielded himself, his whole self to God. That was his food to do the will of his father who sent him. In the garden as he's agonizing and praying, it's, he says, not my will, but your will be done. That is what this self-denial leads to. Us saying, Lord, whatever you would have for me, I yield myself entirely to you. And we as followers of Christ are called to nothing less but complete self-denial and complete devotion to God. To lay ourselves wholly, completely upon the altar as a sacrifice to God. To disown ourselves and say, I belong to you, O God, body and soul. I belong to you. And really, this is where the Christian life begins. This self-denial and consecration to God. By nature, self is on the throne. I don't think I need to convince you of this. We're born with this bent towards self, living for ourselves, self-gratification, self-dependence, self-love, self-will, self Seeking self is on the throne by nature. And until something happens deep within us, that's going to be our life. We're going to live for self. We need a radical change. And that radical change, the Bible teaches, is what we sung about, that new birth. 
that powerful work of the Spirit in us to give us new hearts, to give us a new bent, not towards self, but towards God and living for God. As Paul says, 2 Corinthians 15, 15. He says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's the default. Living for ourselves. That's all of our stories. If we were to go around and share a story, I was living for myself until God changed me. He says, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. Speaking of Christ, we should live for him, not for ourselves. So the person who has denied himself no longer lives for self. He lives for Christ. And even, we could say, Christ lives in him. As Paul said, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Paul, his life now revolved around Christ. It was all for Christ and no longer self. So whoever desires to come after Christ, Jesus says first, let him deny himself. Let him say no to self and say, as we just sung, God, take my life. Take my life. Here it is. Let it be consecrated to you completely. My words, my money, all of my body, all of my being, it belongs to you. That's the first rule of Christian discipleship. It's even the sum of the Christian life that we devote ourselves to God in self-denial and in love and in faith and obedience. Now, this is going to work itself out in a thousand and more ways. The focus here in this text is suffering for Christ. But we could take this and apply it to all of life. If you're a Christian, you're called to self-denial daily in, in everything that you do. Let me just give two examples of how this would work out. In the home, it looks like husbands loving their wives. As Christ loved the church, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, and gave himself for her. Gave himself. That's the self-denial. So self-denial in the home looks like husbands here loving your wife, giving yourself for your wife or the church. Self-denial in the church, it looks like people, again in Paul's words, this time Philippians chapter 2, it looks like people refusing to act out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better. And looking out not just for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's self-denial in the church. It's not just me, number one, looking out for me, but you're looking out for others and loving others. And we could give many more examples. So that's the first thing. Let him deny himself. But secondly, Jesus goes on to say, let him take up his cross. Let him take up his cross. And only those who have denied themselves will be ready for this, to take up the cross, to bear the cross. This is actually the first mention of the cross in Mark's gospel. And the picture here is jarring. The picture is of Christ bearing his cross. And that's a cross that only Christ could bear. And yet his disciples coming after him bearing their cross. 
whatever cross might be allotted to them. That's the picture here. And when we hear this today, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about, and we know why he said this. We know that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We know that he set his face toward this. We know that the cross is coming. His disciples don't yet see this clearly. Jesus has not clearly revealed how he would be killed. He said, I must be killed, but he hasn't said that he would be crucified on a Roman cross. Now, the Roman cross was notorious. Hearing the cross, they would have thought of this, and the crowd probably would have thought of this, but they probably did not suspect that Jesus, being taken by lawless hands, taken by Jewish authorities, rejected by them and all that that entailed, they probably did not suspect that he would be killed by this Roman method, this Gentile method. So we need to put ourselves in their shoes and understand that. But what does Jesus mean when he says this? Well, when he says, let him take up his cross, he means, let whoever desires to come after me be ready to suffer and even to die if necessary. He's saying, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow after me, you need to be ready to suffer and even to die. Let him, Jesus says, deny himself so completely and devote himself so entirely to the will of God that he or she would be ready even to die. That was the path Jesus walked. And it's the path that we are called, if necessary, to walk as well. Jesus said to his disciples, again, this is John 15, he's preparing them for for his departure, but then also what suffering would come upon them. And he says, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And those are words for us, for every disciple today. Now, we should note what taking up the cross does not mean. Taking up the cross is not just suffering in general. So that strictly speaking, not every trial that a believer goes through is a cross. But more specifically, the cross that's taken up by the disciple of Christ is whatever suffering, even unto death, that may result from owning Christ in this world, from from clinging to him. Whatever suffering then might come from that, that is what Jesus, strictly speaking, is talking about when he says, taking up your cross cross. So Jesus is speaking of losing one's life for his sake and for the gospel. He uses that language in verse 35 in the next verse. And in the case of the disciples, almost all of them lost their lives for Christ's sake. Peter even, even though Peter denied Christ, in the end he denied himself and own Christ to his death. And we have good reason to believe that Peter was even crucified. Of course, you know that many, many Christians throughout the centuries, even today, as we prayed for suffering Christians, many have chosen to deny themselves rather than to disown Christ. They say, I will disown myself. I will even, if necessary, die, but I will cling to Christ. Many have done that. They've taken up their cross, and that's what Christ is calling us today to do, and for for however long the Lord has us in this life 
to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to even be willing to suffer with him. Now, if you're like me, you've wondered at times if you're up for this. You think about, you hear stories about people suffering today in this world for Christ. You, you read things like this. You hear this. I'm not telling you anything new. You've heard this. You know it's true. And you say, Lord, am I up for this? And maybe your mind goes there. And, and you think, well, what if I were pressured? And, and what if I had to suffer for Christ? And the encouragement I would give here is that we ought to trust in the grace of God. The same grace of God that drew us to Christ and united us to Christ, will also keep us attached to Christ no matter what, no matter what we might face. So we say, Lord, I don't know what I will face, but I trust your powerful grace to keep me whatever might happen. So Jesus says, first, deny yourself, then take up your cross, and then let's look at this third part. He says, let him follow me. Let him follow me. It's a present tense. Let him continue following me. Speaks of perseverance in following after Christ. Let him continue to tread this path if he wants to come after me. So we see that those three things. Who desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and continue following after me. Whatever might come in following Christ, we have the encouragement that we are in the footsteps of Christ. If you should suffer for Christ, take that encouragement that you are walking in the footsteps of Christ. And whatever we might face, in fact, the more suffering we face for Christ, even if it's just ridicule, pressure at school, pressure at work, or, or to the extent of losing your life, whatever it might be, the more we have to suffer for Christ, the more we actually know Christ, the more we have fellowship with him, the more we enjoy communion with him. So think about that. If you should be called to suffer for Christ, consider your communion with him and that, and be encouraged, as I spoke earlier, that we are called not to follow a dead Savior, but a risen Savior, and one who has ascended to the right hand of God and is reigning and is returning. And even he says here, he speaks of his return later in this passage, the Son of Man. He says, those who were ashamed of me in this life, when I return, the Son of Man. He's talking about his second coming, returning in great power and glory to judge. Then he will be glorious. And he says, then I will be ashamed of those who were ashamed of me. So we ought to consider, we're, we're called to not just follow one who suffered and died and stayed in the grave, but one who was victorious over death, one who died for our sakes and rose again and is now reigning. So we could think of a text like this. This is a dark shadow. And the Christian life, it is weighty, and we ought not to sugarcoat this. There's a dark shadow in following Christ, and that shadow is, is cast by the cross. But if we can speak in those terms, we can also speak of a bright light of discipleship, and that's the resurrection of Christ. So remember words such as we find in Romans 8, 17, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 
So the end of that sentence and the end of, of our story is not that we may suffer with him and that's it, but that we might be glorified with Christ. So that's the statement. We've seen the context. We've seen the content of this teaching of Christ. It's fairly simple. It's straightforward. You've heard it many times, no doubt. The hard part is applying this. What I want to do is to conclude with just some brief exhortations to encourage us. And I have three things that I want to think about with you as we close and and seek to apply this. If these things are true, if, if we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, if that's what it takes, if this is what we're called to, then we ought to count the cost. We need to count the cost of following Christ. That's the language Jesus himself uses in Luke chapter 14 when he's speaking about discipleship. We need to count the cost. There's undoubtedly a cost to be paid in following after Christ. And and I know probably everyone in here who's following Christ has felt that to different degrees, but you have felt the cost. You, You perhaps have suffered even greatly at times for Christ, but our text is clear about this, and it's even clear that it may cost us our lives to follow after Christ. But I want us to think about this. I don't know everybody here, Those of you who are following Christ, we ought to consider these things, meditate upon these things. Those of you who are not following Christ, count the cost, but not just of following Christ, but I would urge you to count the cost of not following Christ. And Jesus is going to go there in in the next verses. So count the cost of following him. It's a high cost, but what is the cost of not following after Christ? Jesus says not to follow him would result in far greater loss. Look at verse 35. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. He has said, whoever desires to follow me will deny himself, take up his cross. And then look, he's talking about another desire. But those who would desire to save their life rather than desire to follow after me, in fact, they will end up losing their life. And what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the loss of one's soul forever. That's the word used. Soul. He's talking about eternal destruction. He's talking about ultimate loss. Those who would seek to preserve themselves in this life and have such a nearsighted view of their existence, he says, ultimately they will lose everything. So it's true, the Christian life is not easy. If you want an easy life, I'm not up here saying, follow Christ if you want your life to get better, if you want all of your problems to be solved. It may solve some problems in your life, but it very well may cause more problems. It may put you at odds with your family. It may put you at odds with a spouse. Any number of problems could result from following Christ. But the key is that our our greatest problem, as we heard, our sin problem will be dealt with. Those who come to Christ and those who follow Christ, who are attached to him savingly, have their sins removed. And they can stand before God and they can be righteous in his sight and have that peace with God because there's one who denied himself and took up his cross and was crucified for sinners in the place of sinners. 
and then rose again without those sins, so that those sins are removed forever from those who are attached to Christ by faith. And so, yes, you may have problems, but your deepest problem, your greatest problem that you could never solve, that nothing in this life could solve for you, will be met if you come to Christ in faith. So what we see in verses 35 to 38, Jesus is going to give incentives to following him. He knows that what he has said is weighty. He knows it's heavy. He knows that there's something, even in in true believers, in their flesh, that's going to resist this. This thought of denying self and, and taking up the cross and suffering for Christ. So he's going to give incentives and encouragements. He's going to reason, if if you look at your text, mine has the word for, verse 35, for, verse 36, for. He's he's giving this, this reasoning to help us, to encourage us to do this, to follow after him. And the first thing he addresses, someone might say, okay, Jesus, what if following you costs me my life? What about my life? And Jesus is going to reason, your soul will be safe forever. And then he goes on, somebody might ask a different question and say, well, what about my ambitions? What about the things in this life that I want to gain? What about riches? What about prestige? Whatever it might be. What about having the good life? Is is following Christ going to get in the way of that? And it may. But Jesus says it will be worth it. Look at verse 36. After saying, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it, he goes on to say, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if that were even possible, but what would it profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Put the sum total of earthly riches in your gain column. You could be on the Forbes billionaire list. You could be on the front of Time magazine. Put it all there. You've got everything you would want in this life. And yet in your lost column, you have your soul. You've lost your soul. Jesus says it's the greatest possible loss. Look, look at verse 37. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's no answer you can give. He's saying you have a never dying soul. And it's more valuable than anything. In this life, there's nothing you can give that will compensate for the loss of your never dying soul. So you see how Jesus is reasoning here. Many people, both young and old, perhaps more often those who are young, put myself in this category, many people seem to live as though they have no soul. They give very little thought to the fact that they have a never dying soul. Their minds are fixed upon the here and now, forgetting that this life is just the beginning of our existence. James asks a question in James chapter 4. He says, what is your life? He's inviting us to think, what is your life? Even as we read this morning, it's grass. But he, he uses a different picture. What is your life? And he says, it's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Most of you know my daughter, Kara. Some of you who don't, Kara is my little daughter. One of the things I like to do when it's cold to entertain her is I will breathe and she can see this vapor. Uh, you know, the, the condensation when it's cold, you can see a little puff. And it's there in just a moment and it disappears. 
He's saying our life is like that. It's just here and gone. If you live even to be a hundred years, your life is but a vapor. And we're invited by our text and many other texts of scriptures to say, okay, then what? After this present existence, when, when your soul departs its body, when you die, then what? Your body is in the grave, but what about your soul? And there's only two places that your soul could go. It, it could pass into glory and, and you be with Christ forever. Or your soul is cast into hell. And this text calls us to consider these things and to count the cost. The stakes are supremely high. These are the things that we need to meditate upon. Christ says, come to me and come after me as my disciple. There's no other way to save your soul. There's no other way to be safe forever but to entrust yourself completely, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. And take up your cross, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow after Christ. And whatever the cross, it will be worth it in the end. Whatever cost, whatever cross, whatever it might cost you to follow Christ, remember it will be worth it in the end. So that's the first thing. We need to count the cost of following Christ and of not following Christ. But secondly, if you would follow Christ, set your mind on the things of God. Remember Peter rebuked Christ because his mind was set upon the things of man and not the things of God. So if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to live a life of self-denial, we need to set our mind on the things of God. This is a hard saying. You might wish Jesus never spoke such words. You naturally recoil at the thought of suffering. The way forward, though, is certainly to set our minds more and more upon the things of God. We have a privilege every Lord's Day to do this, to get reoriented, to get refocused, to set our minds on the things of God. If they've been in the things of man throughout the week, and, and we have to spend a lot of time thinking about the things of this world. We have things to do, things that break, things to care for, but we need to bring our minds to consider the things of God. And we have the privilege to do that today. So we set our minds upon the things of God. Just as Christ firmly had his mind set upon the things of God, doing his Father's will. The mind that's preoccupied with the things of man, is just all consumed with the here and the now, is going to hear a text like this, and it's going to be inconceivable. If your mind is just totally fixed on this life, to hear something like deny yourself and take up your cross, and, and to hear someone saying it might cost you your life to follow after Christ, if you're just thinking in, in manly, earthly, worldly terms, you're just you're going to deny that. You're not going to deny yourself. And so we need our minds fixed. It, often that's our problem. We have our minds so tethered to this earth. We're like Peter when he is rebuking Christ. Our thoughts are so worldly, but we need our minds fixed more and more on the things of God. I, I heard a preacher say once that the primary task of a preacher, of a pastor, of an under-shepherd is to feed the flock 
and to feed the flock in preparation for them to lay down their life as a sacrifice. Picture the lambs that were sacrificed in Israel. He says, I'm feeding the flock so that they might give themselves as a, as a whole offering to God. And, and that's what we do. When we come to God's word, Lord's day by Lord's day, day after day, we're filling our minds with the things of God. We're equipping ourselves and preparing ourselves to live a life of self-denial and of cross-bearing. So we ought to count the cost of following Christ and not following him. We should set our minds on the things of God if you would follow Christ. But then finally, remember that you're not your own. Meditate upon that. Consider you are not your own, but you belong to God. And not just as a creature of God. That's true. God made you. God made everything, so you belong to God. But if you're a believer, you belong to God not just as a creature, but as a child of God. So God is not just our maker, but he's our father. He is our redeemer. And so we belong to God. So consider that. As you're looking at at pressures around you and you're tempted to disown Christ, consider you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And let this thought control you that you are not your own and give yourself entirely to God. And let me close with these words. And this is John Calvin here. He says, we are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. And then he says, conversely, we are God's. We belong to God. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We belong to God. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule in all our actions. Then he says again, we belong to God. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Amen. Let's pray.